The following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. Please take out your Bibles. We're in the book of John. Chapter 6. And we've been working through the book of John these last several weeks. And um, I love the book of John because this is a book in Scripture. I mentioned some weeks ago that there are four Gospels. The first three are called the Synoptics because they're similar. But John, the book of John, stands out among the Gospels because it's unique. It's one of a kind. First of all, the Apostle John was one of a kind. He's the beloved Apostle, the Apostle, last man standing. Again, I mentioned some weeks ago at the cross. It is the Apostle John who's there. All the other Apostles had fled in fear, but John is very faithful to Jesus. And Jesus, from the cross, looks at John and says, Behold your mother, referencing Mary, to Mary, behold your son, referencing John. Also, John is the last apostle to remain. He actually is an old man on the Isle of Patmos when Jesus comes to him in a vision and unfolds before him the book of Revelation. So John, you see, um, is there at the beginning, and he's there. He gets a glimpse into the end times by this Lord Jesus Christ, who he has devoted his whole life to. So John is a very, very precious gospel. And as you look through the book of John, you'll notice that there is an emphasis on a few things. One is the deity of Christ. So John is establishing that Jesus is not simply a moral teacher, He's not simply a religious leader, but that Jesus is truly the incarnate God. He is God-man, God in flesh, the Messiah, Son of God. Again, singular, there is none like him. So John's book establishes that. There are also seven signs or miracles that are mentioned in the book of John. And we're walking through those, and we're going to continue to walk through those. And if you were here, and forgive me, my wife and I and son, we were in in New York on vacation the last few weeks. Uh, So we were not able to be here physically to hear the messages, but we know the messages are always good. And we appreciate the ministry that takes place here at this church because we're committed to teaching the scriptures. Uh, We heard that in this same chapter that we're going to look at today, We have the feeding of the 5,000, and we also have Jesus walking on water. And then there's a discourse where Jesus refers to himself as the bread of life. Earlier, he spoke of living water, and now he's speaking of bread. So bread and water, sustenance, the stuff that we live on, the source of life, in essence, is who Jesus is referring to himself as. That he is, as we said just a few minutes ago, we're saying the cornerstone, the foundation stone whereby everything else is built. He is our source of life. And this morning, I want to read, I want us to read together, and then I want to jump in. We're going to pick up with verse 60 in the book of John. And depending on what version you're reading, you may see a subtitle that many disciples desert Jesus. So we're going to talk this morning about true discipleship and what that means and how that is distinct and different from fandom or false discipleship. Jesus is not looking for fans. He's not looking for fickle followers who are motivated by all the wrong reasons. Rather, Jesus 
is looking for those who seek his heart. Years ago, and I've been fortunate over the years to have had some some really wonderful uh, mentors and folk in the faith that I've been exposed to. I remember being told as a young guy, uh, Tommy, which is all the folk who know me most or best, they refer to me as Tommy. Tommy, don't seek his hands. Uh, seek his heart. Don't, don't seek what Jesus can do for you. Don't just go after the benefits. Go after the person, the heart of Christ. And actually, that's pretty powerful because that's exactly what we're going to see here this morning in what Jesus is calling all of us unto. I'm just going to read through this, and then we're going to unpack it. We're going to walk through it verse by verse. I also have a video clip that I want to show you all later. Uh, Johnny Erickson Tata. Has anyone ever heard of Johnny Erickson Tata before? Raise your hand if you have. Somebody who's a hero in the faith. I want to kind of expose her to you because she's somebody who embodies uh, what we're going to talk about today in true discipleship, what it means and what it looks like to be a genuine, true, born-again, transformed disciple of Jesus. But here, let's start with verse 60. It says, On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? Verse 63, the Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Verse 67, you do not want to leave two, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. And then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. That is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me, please? Once again, Lord, we come to you with expectation. Father, you are faithful. You are good. I pray, Lord, now that you would fill this place with your Holy Spirit. We trust you, Lord, to do the work that only you can do. You know the folk that are here. You know everyone's background. You know everyone's need. And you know, Lord, that I am woefully inadequate. I can't meet anybody's need here, Lord God. So desperately today, this morning, I need your Holy Spirit to come and to do what only you can do, to free us from the chains, bondage that we cannot see, to bring healing and wholeness and hope, deliverance, correction if necessary, Lord, encouragement. But Jesus, that you would be supreme here this morning, have your way. So, Lord, again, by your spirit, fill this place with your presence, Lord God, with your power. I pray this in the name above all names, the name of Jesus. Amen. 
So coming, uh, let me give you some background. And I feel like my microphone's a little low. Could you bring it up just a little bit for me, Steve? Give you a little bit of background on, on what's going on here. Um, we see, because of these signs and miracles, that Jesus has developed a fandom. There are crowds now that are clustering to see Jesus. And Jesus is aware of this. It's interesting, I was reading in an article by Psychology Today about being a fan. If you know me, you know that I'm an ardent uh, Philadelphia Eagles fan. Now, I was a Philadelphia Eagles fan before they won the NFL title, but I love the fact that there are believers on that team, and of course, my family lives in Philadelphia, so I bleed green is what we say as Philadelphia Eagles fans. No offense to those of you here in the land of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So fandom is kind of interesting to me because I've always been into sports. Some of you have. So I kind of have this idea of what it means. So I looked this article up, and it's interesting. There's, this is what the psychologists say, that fans are drawn to their teams because they seek, and they call this quote-unquote, vicarious sense of success. They live through their teams. Y'all know what I'm talking about. In the success of their team, somehow they own it for themselves. Went on to say a fan feels athletically gifted, unstoppable, and adored when their team does well. That's fickle fandom. Fair weather. It's all about the fan, right? and what the fan can get, the satisfaction the fan can derive from following after their favorite athlete, their favorite team. Let me say this morning, in love. Jesus is not looking for fans. He's seeking true disciples. And there's a distinction you know, you put a microphone in the face of just about anybody now on TV and they're going to thank God. Some of them even thank Jesus. And I'm not going to question anyone's authenticity because only God knows the heart, right? But you got to wonder when that same person in their lifestyle decisions, you don't see Jesus reflected. You got to begin to wonder. It feels like Jesus is popular. That following Jesus is a popular thing to do, but I often wonder if folk have translated that into true discipleship. And here, you're going to see a stark example of just that. For a matter of fact, Jesus is dealing with it. Look back at verse 14 and 15 in your Bibles, John 6. Here's what it says, when the people saw the sign with regard to, by the way, him turning the loaves and fish, multiplying those and feeding the at least 5,000, here's what they said. This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So they're awestruck that he provided, he filled their bellies and did this creative miracle. And now they want to start a political movement around Jesus. They want to forcefully establish him. And Jesus, what does he do? He knows the heart of man, right? He withdraws. Now, in today's world, that's counterintuitive. Isn't it about the number of followers you have, the number of likes you have on your social media profile? Isn't it all about gathering a crowd around yourself? Well, not necessarily with Jesus. Look at verse 26. He gets even more clear. Jesus answered them, truly, truly. And whenever he says truly, truly, you better listen. 
He's underscoring something. I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Once again, he understands. They're not seeking his heart. They're in it for what Jesus can do for them. They're not disciples. They're more like fans. That's the backdrop here. Now let's dive in real quick and look at verse 60 to fast forward and um, continue the discourse. Verse 60 says, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Now, that term there, hard saying, and this is confirmed in the Greek, it is not referring to what is hard to believe. But if you look at that term in Greek, which is what this is written in, it actually means hard to accept. It was difficult. It was a hard saying because they resisted it. They did not want to accept what Jesus said. Now, what is the hard saying that was unacceptable to these folk? I think verse 51 gives us kind of a precursor to it. In verse 51, he explains, he's talking about the bread of life, and he explains there that the bread represents the sacrificial giving of himself for the sin of the world. Now, the Jewish leaders, they falsely accuse him of kind of endorsing some type of cannibalism. They know better. He's very clear here. Look at verse 53. This is where I really feel it captures the hard saying that they're struggling with to accept. And dare I say that here in our society today, in our community today, many consider this a hard saying. Look at verse 53. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, there it is again, truly twice. Again, pay attention. This is important. That's what truly, truly means. I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, some feel like, I believe incorrectly, this is a reference to communion. Actually, it's the inverse of that. Communion is a reference to this. This isn't referencing communion. Communion is referencing this. And what is the this I'm talking about? The fact that Jesus would give himself up for a sin-sick, spiritually dead people that he would be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's what he's saying. So listen, here's what they're refusing to believe or to accept. They don't want to hear that they're spiritually dead, they have no life in themselves, and that their only hope is in the bread of life, the sacrificial death of Jesus. That's what's offensive. That's what they just can't accept. And my premise is that for many of us today who've been raised on self-esteem, it's hard for some of us to accept that we are fundamentally broken, violators, in need of a savior. And we'll dig into this in just a little bit more. Look at verse 61. <laughs> but Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, by the way, they grumbled, the Israelites did, when the original manna from heaven was distributed by grace by God to them. Remember that? They grumbled then. And here is the ultimate manna, the bread of life. And what are they doing? 
grumbling still. His disciples are grumbling. He said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Let me interpret that for y'all because I think it's pretty powerful. Here's what Jesus is saying. If all this offended you, what are you going to think when you see me in glory and have to answer to me in judgment? Better be better to be offended now and to get over it than to be offended on that great day when I ascend, when you see me for who I am. No longer the baby in the manger, but now the soon coming king riding a white horse with the armies of heaven, the judge at the seat of judgment, the whole world, everybody who's ever been born will have to stand before to give an account to. So if you're offended now is what he's saying, get over it, deal with it now, because I'm going to ascend and you'll see me for who I really am. You think you're offended? Verse 63, which I think is pretty powerful, and I want to camp here for a few. Goes on to say it is the Spirit, capital S, who gives life. The flesh, in the ESV says, is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit in life. So let me give you one of the key differences between fandom, or I'll call it false conversion, and genuine conversion. Please, by the, in, in the name of Jesus, by the grace of God, Lord, grant us ears to hear this. Listen, genuine conversion, genuine conversion is not the result of the flesh. You and I can't make it happen. The scriptures are very clear. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. There are none righteous, not one. We don't, we can't save ourselves. True conversion is the result of the work of the Holy Spirit. True conversion is the result of the work of the Holy Spirit, which is why I was locked up in that room before service today, praying that the Holy Spirit would come and apply what Jesus has done as purchased for us at the cross, that he would do his work, the work that only he can do. The Holy Spirit convinces us, confronts us in our sin, draws us to Jesus, makes the word of God alive in us. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, but it is the Holy Spirit who illuminates. It is that grace of God. Without the grace of God, you and I are lost. So if you're sitting in a service and you're sensing conviction you're sensing the drawing of the holy spirit that is god's work that is god doing that which may explain why in some cases you'll have two different folk and one is authentically converted and the other one isn't one is working out of their flesh religiosity and the other has genuinely been born again and the two may grow up together. Jesus tells us that he will separate the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the chaff. So he's aware of that, but only the spirit. Listen, John 16, 7, look, should be on the screen. These are the words of Jesus. Listen, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. And this always blows my mind. It is to your advantage that I go away. 
For if I do not go away, the helper, the helper, capital H, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him, him, a person. The Holy Spirit is a person, right? Third person of the Trinity, not an it, not an impersonal force. There's a mystery involved in this. But Jesus here refers to the Spirit, the helper. By the way, what a wonderful title for the Holy Spirit. You need help? He's the helper. Name your problem, name your issue, name your struggle. He's the helper. That's powerful. Mm. Listen, verse 8. When he comes, what is he going to do? Again, pronouns. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He does the convicting. It's not the sound of my voice. Are you kidding me? It's not the theatrics of a preacher. It's not how nice the facility is. That's not what's going to happen to transform, to do a work in the heart of men and women. It's going to require, it requires the precious Holy Spirit for him to work. And I'm praying even now, Holy Spirit, come and work. Do what only you can do. True conversion is not simply being religious. And I hear this all the time, or being quote, unquote, spiritual. I'm a spiritual person. You hear that. Or doing religious activities. None of those can produce true conversion. None of those can produce true disciples. Fans? Sure. Fickle? Sure. True discipleship? No. True conversion is about supernatural transformation that can only be accomplished by God and listen, and is accessed by grace through faith, and offer to whosoever will believe. John 3.16, or you can look at your uh, John 6 text, go back to verse 40, and he says it there as well. Let me read that again. True conversion is about supernatural transformation that can only be accomplished by God and is accessed by grace through faith and offered to whosoever will believe. As Jesus said to Nicodemus back in John chapter 3, you must be born again. So whosoever will, by faith, respond. In response, the work of God, the grace of God is imparted. Even in your responding to the call, it requires the grace of God to draw you, to unlock your mind and your heart and your soul, to be able to comprehend and receive that blessed assurance, that message of the cross. It requires the work of the Spirit. Let me show you some scriptures. Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. First John chapter 5, beginning with verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, born of God. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Titus 3, 5, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, 
but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of who? The Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit regenerates. Now, listen, let me come over verses first. Second Corinthians 517. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And first Peter one three says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Listen, listen. God doesn't want to take my jalopy of a heart and give it a new paint job and knock out the dents. He wants to remove it altogether and replace it. That's transformation. That's regeneration. You are actually given, granted by God, a new nature. He imparts himself to you. This is the bread of life we're talking about. Living water, the work of the spirit. He deposits in you. The spirit of God comes to dwell in you and makes you brand new. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I no longer live. Christ lives in and through me. I am dead. I am gone. Jesus has imparted his life into me. That's regeneration. Religion is we get the paint out and we feel like if we give enough money, we attend enough services, we do acts of benevolence, we come in, we sing our songs, that somehow that counts as righteousness for us. It's not what the scriptures say. That's fandom. That's not regeneration. That's not true discipleship. Verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Because Jesus is God, he has the divine ability to know the heart of man and woman. He was and is never deceived by false faith or fandom, nor is he surprised by the one who would betray him. Theologians call this the invisible versus the visible church. Quickly explain it to you. The visible church would be those who we see here professing believers across the world. The invisible church would be those who Jesus knows are genuinely his. The Bible is clear on this, that there is an invisible church in a visible church. We coexist. That at the day of judgment, God will sort out those who are authentically born again from those who are going through the motions who have a form of godliness denying the power is what the scriptures say. So Jesus knows. Let me give you an, imp an important principle here, though. Listen. Again, please, Jesus. Some would ask, like, well, Tom, you're, it's, it's heavy. What you're saying is heavy. I get it. I'm not saying, I mean, this is the scripture. We're going to get into it even further in a few minutes as we wrap things up. (sighs) 
those who are drawn by the Father through the Spirit will often have a clear hunger for God, not just his blessings. I'll say it again. Those who are drawn by the Spirit, respond, are born again. Typically, I'm not saying it's, you still struggle, you still wrestle, there's still a sin nature you deal with. But what ends up happening is when that heart is transformed, you're going to find that you are now drawn to the heart of God. Not just for what he can do for you. You're going to be drawn to him. This is the born again experience. Verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. For many, this was a bridge too far. Religion, my personal needs being met, manna from heaven, a political kingdom, all that is cool. But all this talk about conversion, sacrifice, our utter dependence on Jesus for salvation, recognition of my own sinfulness, no thank you. So Jesus saw his following shrink. That should be a word of encouragement in a world where so many faithful pastors, ministers, missionaries are pressured into gauging their effectiveness, and I use that in quotes, by numbers by how many people attend or participate. Here's our Lord and Savior himself. God on, on earth, God in flesh, Jesus. And they walk away from him. Scores of so-called followers of Jesus left. They're offended by what Jesus had spoken or required. They were never true followers. They were never true disciples. They were following for various selfish reasons but they weren't seeking to truly know Jesus. Verse 67, so Jesus said to the 12, do you, do you want to go away as well? Verse 68, Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter makes the statement that every true believer should understand. It should resonate in your heart right now. It should be ringing in your heart. You know exactly what Peter's talking about, true believer. Lord, to whom shall we go? You see, it changes everything. 
Jesus becomes our very source of life. He becomes our home. It's not what he gives for gives to us per se. He becomes our portion, our bread, our water. He becomes. Peter captured that. I want to show you a four-minute video because I could try to describe this, but I think the best way to do it is just to kind of show you an example of someone who I think embodies this true discipleship. Her name is Johnny Erickson Tata. She's 17 years old. She was a swimmer. She jumped into a lake with her sister, severed her spine. Her sister saw her hair floating above the water and rescued her. Otherwise, she would have died. Actually, the story is even more profound than that. Her sister had her back turned in a snapping turtle or some noise took place. I think it was something that happened that caught her sister's attention. The sister whipped around and saw Johnny floating on the water and was able to rescue her. Johnny Erickson taught her she lost the ability to walk. She lost the ability to use her hands. But she had a glorious, a marvelous, transformational experience with Jesus. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. We have this stark side-by-side comparison of a true follower, Peter's proclamation, Johnny Erickson Tata, in a fan, Judas. But this challenges me because Judas was personally chosen to be an apostle by Jesus Christ. And Judas forsook all to follow Jesus. Judas spent three and a half years traveling the length and breadth of Israel with Christ. Judas saw the miracles of Christ in person. He heard Christ give all of his famous discourses. He watched as Christ healed the sick, raised the dead, and cast out demons. He, Judas, along with the other apostles, was sent out to preach. And no one, none of those guys, suspected that he'd be the one So why betray Christ? I close. There are three theories. One is that he betrayed Jesus for money. By the way, I feel like all of these apply to us in our world today. Why do folk walk away? What tends to be the obstacle to being a true disciple, to remaining a fan. For some, it's money. We know that in John 12, 6, it tells us that Judas stole money from the money bag. So there's a chance there that money motivated his betrayal. But 30 pieces of silver would be something like $20 today. That's betrayal on the cheap, which is why a lot of folk don't hold to that theory. 
the prevailing theory is that he betrayed Jesus because he was disillusioned. It suggests that Judas expected Jesus to lead an uprising against Rome. And when he found out that Jesus had no such intentions, he became angry and betrayed him. Disillusionment. Jesus isn't meeting my needs. Jesus isn't doing what I think he ought to be doing. He's not acting the way I think he ought to be acting. And the third theory is that maybe Judas betrayed Jesus because he was frightened. As he saw the storm clouds gathering in the final few days of Jesus' life, some feel like he may have betrayed the Lord in order to save his own skin. He wilted under the hot glare of persecution, wanting to be accepted. Any of those three could be obstacles for even some here this morning. Judas chose to attempt to place the ultimate value on something, someone, other than Christ. What about you? What about me? To whom? Shall you go? To whom shall I go? So here we are this morning in conclusion. You may be a believer, authentic, true disciple of Jesus, and you needed a refresher this morning, a reminder. A call, maybe, to redirect our focus back to the source of our life, to remind us that he is more than just the provider of our need. He's our source. He desires intimate relationship with us. He wants you to know him. It's amazing to me that the God of the universe the God who formed the heaven and the earth desires that you love him. He wants to be loved by you. That's amazing. He wants to be loved by you. He wants to be your everything. He wants you to acquiesce and surrender to that. Or maybe you're here today and you're a fan and you know it. You know that as we walk through this It's like God has his finger. The spirit of God has been tugging at you. I don't want you to leave this morning without having the opportunity to be prayed for. I don't want you to leave this morning. Jesus doesn't want you to leave this morning without having the opportunity to pray, to commit yourself to Jesus. The scriptures say if we confess our sins, we place our faith in the finished work of the cross of Christ, we run to the Savior, we acknowledge 
that we can't save ourselves. We acknowledge that our righteousness is, as the scripture says, like filthy rags and that we have a savior in Jesus. The scriptures promise that whosoever will, God will save you, deliver you, adopt you, call you into intimate relationship with him. Eternal life, which by the way, doesn't start at your funeral. Starts the moment you accept Jesus Christ as your savior. Life explodes in your heart. It's amazing. We're going to have um, the elders and, and folk who are willing to stay behind and pray. For anyone who'd like to come at the end of service, we'll be here at the front. Please don't walk out today. If the Spirit of God has been drawing you, please let us pray with you, pray for you. Jesus loves you. He brought you here this morning for a reason. And maybe there are some who just want to recommit. Maybe you want to simply pray, Lord, fill me afresh with your Holy Spirit and give me, grant me a, a, a new sensitivity, a new desire, fresh desire for more of you, for your heart. Refocus me, Lord. Help me to see you more clearly. We'll invite you to come and stay and, and pray as well. I'll be here praying. Let's stand. Thank you for listening to this message from Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org.